Welcome to the Mindful News Podcast. And today joining Jonathan and I is the director of the Mindfulness Initiative and clerk to the UK Mindfulness All-Party Parliamentary Group, Jamie Bristow. What we're starting to work on really is what we call trainable inner capacities of heart and mind. So we're starting to see that mindfulness has been used as an umbrella term for a whole range of things that we can choose to cultivate through intentional practice, right? Um, and that's that kind of umbrella term is starting to break down a little bit as we're sort of looking at other things that we can practice. There's a kind of business model issue with our attention. Like a lot of the business models are about fragmenting, you know, distracting, capturing, keeping, selling our attention. And that's the you know, most hypnotizing in a way. Yeah. Or our data, I guess. Yeah. And there's a business model to like keep you coming back and keep you engaged, right? So Headspace, tremendously skillful use of technology, particularly for men. And um, we found back in, uh, I remember in Headspace days, is like, you know, at that time, it might have changed now, men are more comfortable with it. But at that time, women much more like to turn up to a, a group, you know, in the workplace or something and to talk about their feelings amongst colleagues. Men much happier to stick their headphones on and look like they listen to music when actually they're meditating, you know. And so made, it just made meditation accessible to just millions of people who would never turn up to something. So in 2013, the crucial like, first step was that there was a mindfulness teaching program established. So this is where the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, which is sort of part of the university, started teaching politicians and they have done that actually another company's taken over now in the last couple of years but since then you know, since 2013 over 400 MPs and members of the House of Lords have had some mindfulness training yeah. Richard Laird was one of the yeah. first and in fact he along with Chris Rowan a member of parliament were instrumental in inviting the Oxford Mindfulness Centre to, to start yeah, teaching other politicians Jamie Bristow is director of the Mindfulness Initiative, a policy institute about mindfulness and compassion training that grew out of a programme of mindfulness teaching for politicians in British Parliament. We talk about the game-changing efforts that are taking place to educate our politicians, to meditate and understand the benefits so that change can be made in the correct way from the very top. Now, Jamie spent many years helping to teach and share mindfulness, having worked with Andy at Headspace as the business development director and also was the co-director of the Mindfulness Initiative Founded originally in 2013 by Chris Cullen and Madeleine Bunting to support British politicians in forming the all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness. We dig into Jamie's early years, his desire to help others, what it means to be intentional, foundational mindfulness, and we discuss his passion for climate change. Also visit mindfulnews.uk for all of our podcasts, powerful video clips on our growing library of free inspiring guided meditations, including the mental push-up. My co-host Jonathan has some cool meditations that I encourage you to check out and links to these are in the description. I'm your host Guy on our continuing mission to help as many people organically. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to join. It's an incredible honour for Jonathan and I. It's my great pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thank you. And I'll jump into my, to my first question. Show a strong desire to help others. The people the planet, but also helping on a big scale. Um, you know, this idea of be the change in the world that you want to see. So I'm very interested to know, where does that come from? What part of your upbringing and your early experience created this? You know, where, where, does, that, where does that come from? Mm. Uh, just to get a little insight in, in, into that. Uh, that's a beautifully original question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Well, funnily enough, when I was in school, I did one of those careers, you know, uh, surveys or, you know, tests that kind of tells you what you should be. Um, (laughs) And I did one which had like tree with like thickness of branches, depending on how likely a Mm. career path it is. And there's like a career down to kind of like, I know, finance based stuff or tech based stuff. And there was a, there was an arm on the, on the tree that was something like caring based stuff. And that was a withered, completely, almost almost non-existent branch on my tree <laughs> at that time. You know, it, it was, and I'd be a doctor or, you know, be one of the caring professions or work for a charity or something like that, you know, didn't really cross my mind. And 
I, I grew up in a household where one of the main bits of advice was do something you love and earn enough money to have nice holidays. That was the formula. And to some extent, the house was it was also quite scientific materialist, like nothing to see here. The world's quite straightforward. It's, you know, consciousness mm. is an epiphenomena. The Big Bang is the beginning and the end of it sort of, sort of thing. And now things are so different in both ways. As you say, working for others in service is the main driving force of my life. And certainly I have a lot more open perspective on what, what might be going on here in the world than that kind of materialist yeah, uh, background might suggest. What happened? Well, when I left university, I, I still, well, yeah, I think I still mainly wanted to work in advertising, which I did for a few years, and be the chief executive of an ad agency. And that was fine. That was, you know, some total of my aspirations, I think. So what did you study and at I school and university? Sorry? Yeah, just quickly. What did I study? Yeah, yeah. What was your I studied, I studied major? psychology, I guess. So I was already interested in the mind. Mm. But, yeah, it, it, was, it was curiosity rather than a desire to necessarily help people that much, I'm being completely honest. But there, there was some, just definitely some latent stuff there. And, you know, a very caring family all the same. And I genuinely credit my meditation practice with changing the direction of my life in that way. So is it just the meditation practice? I think probably not. I think there are ways in which my personality type or things from my background and family, et cetera, were maybe latent and then unactivated uh, until that point. But the practicing of compassion, the practicing of uh, mindful awareness and the studying of what you might call, you know, the Dharma or like the teachings relating to how to live a skillful life in this world mm. and the nature of this world completely transformed my life direction and what I want to do. With but was it meditation in a Buddhist sense or in a, in a secular mindfulness sense? How was your introduction to that? To be honest, I mean, I took it where I could get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and initially there was a Buddhist and meditation society in university, which had a kind of Buddhist flavor, but they were aware that most people wouldn't necessarily be, you know, fully into that. And then I guess I practiced yeah, I, I practiced in a kind of Buddhist environment. Yeah, but like in very accessible ways that weren't sort of heavy on the on the yeah. Buddhism or any commitment to the, at that time. And really, it was sort of mindfulness of breathing and sort of kindness and compassion yeah, practices exactly. uh, that did the thing. So then you you worked at Headspace for just under two years. Shout out to Andy, you know, one of our podcast alumni. Yeah. It was wonderful talking with him. So as the business development director and then a year later the Headspace for Teams director. Mm. And for those that don't know, Headspace specializes in mindfulness meditation online, but particularly through their incredible app. And it is one of the leading meditation apps available and reaches millions of people globally. And for you, what were some of the most impactful learning lessons from that experience in those roles and and working with, with Andy? Oh, yeah. So I guess we might come back to the to the climate change stuff. But in between my advertising times and working for Headspace, I spent some time working for a climate change campaign and then decided that I really needed to, to help make mindfulness and meditation more accessible because I saw that for me, it was the thing that radically changed my perspective on the climate uh, crisis issue. And I saw Headspace doing something that I thought was so skillful and I would really love to be a part of. And that's what the co-founder and Andy's co-founder, Rich Pearson, talks talks about like rebranding meditation. Because I was an advertising executive, he was an ex-advertising executive mm, of a kind interesting, of like similar rival advertising agency. And so, you know, as an ad man teaming up with Andy, he saw that at that time, particularly, you couldn't say the word meditation. You know, it was totally far out woo stuff, and no one knew what mindfulness was. You know, so how do you talk yes, about it? Yes, and I, I just thought it was they've done such a service both to their users, but also just to make it down to earth and cool and a household name thing, you know, and that's partly what we've been doing from a different way. You know, we've been working with mindfulness in politics and public policy, which people often use as a reference point to say like how credible and sort of like, you know, not weird this is. Hey, even the politicians are doing it, you know. Yeah. And, but that's, you know, that's what I really learned, I guess, was a lot about language. What Rich and Andy had over time realized that you couldn't say uh, what was safe to say, what was changing, you know, what John Kabat-Zinn calls the languaging of mindfulness, you know, like they were just so skillful. 
in figuring out what images to use. In fact, the lack of images, they decided not to use any mm. photographs and just had this kind of like uh, culturally transferable illustration style. And yeah, so I just have such respect for Rich's vision, particularly, and just Andy's integrity and content. That's kind of always been there. That partnership, I think, initial partnership as well, has been the main pillar of their success. Right. And then you, um, I don't know if it's part three of your, this concept of agency, right? Because I think maybe we can look a bit into that, you know, agency, that term later on, but that technology can aid collaboration, however, can also create conflict and fragmentation. Did you notice any of the latter at Headspace and, you know, with the fact that it is very, the technology is kind of the the medium used to deliver yeah. the, the teachings? Great question. And you're referring to the uh, Mindfulness Developing Agency in Urgent Times document mm-hmm. that we yes. created having researched lots of different aspects of where the world is kind of having problems going wrong and that interact with each other. And the environmental crises are kind of just one part of that. There's you know, democratic crises, there's a crises of our information ecology or information commons the media landscape and particularly you know, the influence of digital on our lives yes and you know it's it's popular at the moment to to slam it with the release of the documentary a social dilemma which is fun you know, i think it's required watching for every citizen to be honest yeah. with you and we may be starting to, to not see all the amazing ways in which it's helped us to connect with each other and in some ways has made our lives sort of simpler and freed up time etc etc however it's causing us all kinds of problems and fundamentally there's a kind of business model issue with our attention like a lot of the business models are about fragmenting you know distracting capturing keeping selling our attention and that's the almost hypnotizing in a way yeah or our data i guess and there's a business model to like keep you coming back and keep you engaged right so Headspace, tremendously skillful use of technology, particularly for men. And um, we found back in, uh, I remember in Headspace days, is like, you know, at that time, it might have changed now, men are more comfortable with it. But at that time, women much more like to turn up to a, a group, you know, in the workplace or something and to talk about their feelings amongst, amongst colleagues. Men much happier to stick their headphones on and look like they listen to music when actually they're meditating, you know. And so made, it just made meditation accessible to just millions of people who would never turn up to something. However, there's a business model issue in like keeping people in the ecosystem. And I know the guy is you know, aware of this, but it's like as soon as you have a software as a service model, which is what they call it, SaaS model, which basically most of our successful apps are, you know, they want you to sign up for every month, for a year, for whatever, and they want to keep you in the system. Ideally, you know, forgetting that you've even subscribed in the first place or, you know, that, that, kind, of, that kind of thing. You know, then you have an incentive to keep people doing what you're doing. And although they said like, you know, our objective is to get people to, graduate from from headspace you know to no longer need it and to go on to other things there's always that tension there that's antithetical to your business model at the same time as you sort of wanted to do that and then you also have to kind of gamify stuff a little bit like is gamifying mindfulness right you know giving people badges and run streaks and that kind of thing is that the right way to keep people there and so that you know i think that they are navigating it fairly well but there are tensions and of course there are tensions well, then in, in 2015, you know, after about a year and eight months at Headspace, you then joined the Mindfulness Initiative as director. I see director and co-director in another source. Perhaps mm. you can clarify. I don't know if that was an evolution, but before yeah. you answer that. So originally founded in 2013 by Chris Cullen and Madeline Bunting, and this idea of supporting British politicians in forming this all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness. And we spoke about, you know, John Kabat-Zinn and Ruby Wax being... You know, some of the patrons, former alumni on the podcast, and also the the wonderful Lord Lord Richard Layard, who is founder of the Action for Happiness charity, program director at the London School of Economics, but also vice chair at the party. Of our all party group. Of the all party group, yeah. So how would you summarize the last five years? Like I said, don't necessarily have to get in into the weeds, but in terms of progress, creating awareness, creating change. Can you just share, share with some of our listeners some of the key achievements and progress? Yeah. yeah. So in 2013, the crucial like, first step was that there was a mindfulness teaching program established. So this is where the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, which is sort of part of the university, started teaching politicians, and they have done that. Actually, another company's taken over now in the last couple of years. But since then, you know, since 2013, 
over 400 MPs and members of the House of Lords have had some mindfulness training. Yeah. Richard Laird was one of yeah. the first. And in fact, he, along with Chris Rowan, a member of parliament, were instrumental in inviting the Oxford Mindfulness Centre to, to start yeah, teaching other politicians. And it was really driven out of their personal interests, having experienced some profound benefit in the science behind what they'd learned and the potential applications within their day job, you know, like public policy. Whereas this stuff showing up in health, education, criminal justice and the workplace mm -hmm. and, you know, could it be better applied? So that inquiry was what I turned up to help with. I was one of the volunteers and experts, you know, working at Headspace at the time mm -hmm. to support those politicians who had been practicing to form this all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness, which is like a student society for backbench MPs. You know, there are, <laughs> there are sort of hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah. Some are more active than others. And it's like a, a forum for mutual inquiry and, and making recommendations to government on a cross-party basis, yeah. right? So we helped them to form that group. We brought our first policy inquiry, which is uh, probably still the biggest we did because we, it featured eight or nine hearings and published the world's first public policy report about mindfulness training called Mindful Nation UK. And that was, yeah, 2015 or so. And it was at that point that I was invited to take over as director of the Mindfulness Initiative, having been running the criminal justice strand of the inquiry. And since then have been continuing the work because it's there's no use like just launching a public policy report and expecting anyone to, anyone to do anything about it like like that's kind of the starting gun not the finish line yes you need to then go to ministers uh, evolve what it is that you're asking for you know do the conference circuit now the podcast circuit you know tell people about it for about three years afterwards you know before it like starts to actually really influence thinking and to do that i've you know i needed some support and infrastructure and so basically like fundraised for my own job to do the work that was needed and to really make use of the great potential that we had on our hands. Because going through this initial process, this inquiry, the halo effect was it was kind of bringing the field together, uh, helping people to connect, inspiring other politicians in other parliaments around the world. Nice. So we got invited, to, uh, me and Chris Rowan, he called us the, the, the Laurel and Hardy of mindfulness. <laughs> um, because I'm quite tall and thin and he's quite something else that I won't mention. But like, <laughs> he and I toured you know particularly around europe but also doing meetings in Sri lanka and australia and canada etc and have helped to establish mindfulness in 10 national parliaments and inspire policy inquiries as well so the, the, the mindfulness initiative france and the mindfulness initiative austria i think to uh yeah to follow directly in our footsteps with the name at least so we had some success. So your initial question is that, yeah, yeah, we did have we did have some success since then. And you know, most of the, in fact, the criminal justice recommendations were sort of followed to the letter by a team in, in the Ministry of Justice who used our report as, a, as impetus to form a steering group and then work on it for like four years. So they couldn't, you couldn't have hoped for a better outcome there. And then in health, there was a kind of messier and longer term business. Basically, we've, we've got to where we need to be. Education is more nuanced and the, and the workplace, much more like diverse a sector and huge, huger sector, but, but made good progress there through our other, our other activities. And beyond that, which I'm sure we'll start talking about later mm -hmm. in the conversation, we moved from looking at sort of direct policy applications to specific things that ministers already knew they needed help with, like, for mm -hmm. instance, the depression rates in the UK. And we have yep. you know, strong and specific evidence showing that mindfulness yep. training, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy helps with recurrent depression. We moved from that to trying to join the dots between all of these different bits of data, all these different applications, mm. and all of the, the siloed policy app, potential policy applications yeah. in order to create a bigger picture and frame mindfulness and compassion training more recently as foundational capacities for a flourishing society rather than just, you know, a fix for that, this or the other. And that's, that's brought us even more success. So John, before we'll hand it to you for a question, you know, I think my last couple of points on this is I've noticed myself when my niche corporate world teaching mindfulness, and I found a lot of struggle, you know, when I mentioned the word mindfulness off the mm. bat, because they don't know what it is or the connotations of something meditation related or Buddhist related. And so then I started over the years to change the approach. And now, you know, I'm very much more about how to upskill 
employees. Mm. You know, the World Economic Forum speaks of, you know, what are the skills that are going to be important for management in the next three or four years with more automation, more more AI and stuff like critical thinking, emotional intelligence, mm. creativity and so on. And it's very interesting to hear your comment about, you know, a good story trumps a big stack of research papers, mm-hmm. maybe unfortunately. But yeah, we got this data, we got lots of research, you know, government people, politicians, check it out. But I'm falling on deaf ears potentially, you know. So does the labeling of the word mindfulness immediately pigeonhole you? And just if you can share some insight with us into some of the challenges that you and your team face when talking at the government level with politicians mm-hmm. and decision makers about why should politicians care about mindfulness and how it can impact these different areas of public policy that you spoke about and you know what what have you had to overcome mm-hmm. yes yeah, so we started from a very low base you know in terms of how, what people understood of mindfulness like this was 2014. I mean, like, you know, that famous Time magazine cover where you had the kind of blonde woman with her eyes closed on the front of Time magazine saying the mindfulness revolution. And I think that was sort of around that time. Mm -hmm. But certainly it wasn't much before that when the press started taking notice of this as a mainstream phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And politicians might have come across it in the papers initially in 2014. And certainly, I mean, certainly meditation, the word meditation was was a no-no. In, in politics and policy and we had a good we had a serious education job to do in the early years but where, where we got to is that it's you know it's a fairly credible and safe thing to talk about and they have a superficial understanding of what it is it's calm it's chill out it's taking some time some me time or something which of course we know it's a hell of a lot more than that and rather than being a kind of a well-being nice to have it should be a learning and development hygiene factor as I say, framing it as a kind of foundational capacity for a whole load of other things rather than it being in it. So there's still, I'd say, poor and shallow understanding of it, but it is at least credible. And one of the things that helped actually was we had, to, you know, the launch of our public policy report, we managed to get three government ministers to the launch to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, getting any government ministers to an all-party parliamentary group meeting is pretty good going, but we had three, including a Secretary of State for Education and their mental health minister. And so it's things like that, that kind of word got around, I guess. Uh, that was you know, an interesting phenomenon. So it built up over time. What's interesting now is that the word mindfulness, and I don't know what your experience is, but in the, in the workplace, in most workplaces now, it's also completely accepted. I mean, we have like very it's, it's large... It's made HS- progress in leaps and bounds. That's for sure in the last five, 10 years, for sure, yeah. It might be smaller organizations, but larger organizations that I don't know, particularly kind of banks or lawyers or advertising agencies, like most of them will have some kind of mindfulness training program. Some of them are now, you know, investing six figures annually in, in a program. I mean, some are not, not, not that many, but like, and you have like people who, whose job it is to coordinate that mindfulness program, like an HSBC, for instance, I was on ITV news in the, in the UK recently talking about how I really respect what HSBC have done. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, what's interesting is we're starting to sense in some places the word meditation has become more acceptable mm. and attractive than the word mindfulness. Mindfulness having been the safe word for yeah. meditative practices, you know. Yeah. Mindfulness kind of got slammed a little bit in the press, either as being shallow or this kind mac- of mindfulness, mindfulness yeah. thing, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's really reinforced it as this yeah, sort of like a shallow calming thing. Whereas some people are like, okay, well, give me the meditation, give me the real stuff. It's not really sort of saying that these are, yeah, in many, in many ways, not on the overlapping concepts and, and uh, that kind of thing. And so, and actually mindfulness is, is the less, less attractive word. In politics and policy, it still has to be mindfulness. Oh, really? But in some types of workplace, okay, okay. in some mainstream contexts, in some popular culture contexts, actually medita- oh. meditation is an easier word to talk about. And, I have have expected this evolution in language for some time, as I've been saying to John Kabat-Zinn and others. You know, mindfulness is going to be so 2015, not because it will not continue to be a foundational capacity for a flourishing individual group society, but because it has been used, overused as an umbrella term. It's been had too much put in it. A, it's been used in so many different ways. It's a practice, it's a training, it's a way of being. It's a capacity, it's a state, it's a trait, it's a, you know, I, I, I want to sort of map to all the different, you know, all the different types of way, way in which the word is used. And it's it's mm-hmm. obviously muddy in that way. 
but also we like to use it as a particular capacity to pay attention to what the ability to be aware of what's going on in and around us with the attitude of openness, allowing curiosity and care. It's a natural human capacity. But most people think about it as a broad set of disciplines and techniques and, and practices and a training program and or like, you know, a mm. pastime. And that contains so many different things. It does have a bit of ethical inquiry and it does have a bit of embodiment and it does have a bit of kindness and compassion and all that kind of thing. And some people will say, oh, you know, the problem with mindfulness is it's it's just too narrow. It's just about like this sort of, a, you know, narrow sense of awareness or whatever, or attention regulation, understanding of it. I suppose there, in some definitions of mindfulness, you could say that. I mean, Matthew Ricard is like this. You know, you have mm. to talk about compassion. Yeah. Same time as mindfulness. Because Altruism, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cold. But that's not the way it's taught. That's not most yeah. people's experience mm. of it. And particularly now, it goes hand in hand with kindness and compassion practices in mindfulness course. So my sense is that we're coming to a point where we don't quite know what to call all this stuff. And I'm I'm in the point of inquiry with some of my you know um, confidence advisors and you know and answers on a postcard, please. You know where do we go to now mm-hmm. if we want a more nuanced conversation? You yeah. know we want to talk about equanimity and the role of joy and the role of compassion, the role of awe, the role of you know all of these things which are cultivatable, yeah. gratitude, etc., etc., etc. But we don't want to use the word dharma because it's a foreign word which basically just means all of those things thrown in together, like you know. yeah. yeah. And, you know, do we say inner capacities? That's, that's my best guess at the moment. Trainable inner capacities of heart and mind or inner development. Do we talk about that? Because I'm also involved in the inner development goals, this new project, which is basically saying in order to meet the sustainable development goals, these external goals, we also need some inner goals, inner development goals for us to be equal to the challenge. And, uh, and yeah, so that's a very long-winded answer to, to a quite simple question. But language is a big part of what I've been doing for the last eight years. The idea of storytelling, which you were saying earlier exactly. on, right? The importance of storytelling, because that's, you know, when you get that right, that's how you, you get the communication, it, right? That's how you get totally, the message. Totally, right? yeah. I came across a phrase recently, which, is, um, which made sense of me. Like, am I a thought leader? Yeah, I guess. But I feel more like I'm a narrative entrepreneur, <laughs> which I really like. Like basically yeah. coming up with new narratives and then selling them. Yeah. Interesting, because that's how, you know, the, the old the definition of like gurus and prophets, not to call you a guru or a prophet, but it's the idea of taking complex ideas and putting it in such a way that is digestible and that is transferable to the masses. Oh, believe me, you've got to do that for politicians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so Jonathan, can you share a little bit to our listeners as well? So, you know, why were you so keen to get Jamie on the podcast? And, you know, when after having seen his work and his conversations, what is it that you want to ask and take this opportunity to, you know, to dive into? Well, like I said, it's obvious, you know, with all the work he's done that he's doing and that he will do that he genuinely cares Again, mindfulness, as we've been talking about it, yeah, through practice, we are able to get past some of our personal challenges and some of our illnesses and and coping with all of that. But it's not limited to that. And two of the things that I aim to do on a daily basis personally on social media is to educate and encourage. You know, those are very important. And you know, getting into the science of it all. And it can be a little discouraging at times because, you know, people want to grab onto sometimes the, you know, inspirational quotes and things like this. And that's beautiful. But how can we get a little bit deeper in sharing some of this? And, you know, there's always the non-judgmental element of mindfulness as well. You know, we start developing our own practice and, and becoming you know, realizing how interconnected we are with, with everything, with this planet. I mean, it's, um, it's our responsibility to wake up to a lot of this. So, and in this area, maybe too, as well, where I am, it's start to care a little more and you want to go out and talk about it a little bit in your own community. And, you know, I've been told by even people that, that I'm even a little close to, like you're getting a little too liberal now. And what, you know, what do you mean by that? I mean, I just, I just care about people. I care about the planet and that's how Guy and I connected. And that's the reason that we bring on 
wonderful guests like yourself, Jamie, because this is important. I mean, sustainability, it's important. The common thing that we that we all should realize is love and care. And, you know, well, I rarely on, but what my question is to you is how would you encourage people that want to express and share some of these issues both on social media and in our own communities that's in a way that's non-judgmental and like you said maybe mindfulness for example is not the right word to approach maybe you heard these expressions emotional intelligence Mm. you know getting into the science of it all you know do we get into the compassion area i mean there's so many areas that can we can get into with this but Mm. how would you suggest going about that Mm. yeah i touched on this a little bit already and that's my sense is that there's a missing piece in in how we've been talking about mindfulness and it's not surprising because you know the piece was missing when mindfulness came into society in the in the mainstream and it was kind of on its own as a vanguard thing that you can do to train your heart and train your mind. But we kind of need to make the case for doing any anything like that first. You know, the question is, what are you practicing? Mm-hmm. And to make the case for like us needing to level up, to mature, to develop ourselves in order to be equal to the challenges of our times. And I think there's appetite for that, you know, and you you see it in places like the vast popularity of Jordan Peterson, who's basically telling, you know, part of that's like, you know, tidy your room, clean up, have a bit of discipline. He's talking about like ethical principles. You might not agree with them. And he's t- you know, telling you to do some practices that will make you, you know, in the long run more able to to contribute. But it's just, it's interesting, you know, he's incredibly diverse and divisive controversial figure thoroughly entertaining but at the core if you look at what he's offering he's offering re-enchantment of the world he's offering inspiration to take responsibility <laughs> and to train oneself practice oneself you know like have a bit of discipline and i think this is the kind of missing piece the mindfulness was sort of, I mean, for some people, addressing as well without really knowing it. You know, for some people, the mindfulness is a way of being, falling in love with the life again, like, you know, with, with mindful awareness and, you know, the kind of, this kind of evangelistic bent that sometimes happens when people practice for the first time and feel like they're kind of like aware of things for the first time, like wowzers moss or, <laughs> or you right. know, whatever it is they start staring at as if they're stoned or something. I mean, that's not everybody, of course, but like, I mean, I've certainly heard those anecdotes. There's that kind of, sort of re-enchantment element, which I think is particularly true when practicing not necessarily in the kind of strictly scientific materialist context. And you have this, yeah, like I can take I can have some sovereignty, some agency over the my inner landscape. You know, it's up to me. And I suppose maybe I have responsibility for the sake of my wife, husband, you know, colleagues or whatever, to do some inner work. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the role of inner work in our society is totally missing. So mindfulness comes along and kind of creates that. In fact, in advertising, we have a word for this. It's called doing a category job. So say that like, no one's ever heard of a car before, like it's the first car on the market, Model T Ford or something. You know, The Ford have got to sell the idea of a car, not just the Model T Ford. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're introducing an entirely new thing and convince people that you should probably like sell your horse and come apart and consider the combustion engine you know and then over time of course like there are loads of cars everyone knows what a car is you haven't got to tell them and instead like it's like this car over that car or whatever but mindfulness coming on the scene is a little bit like you know the model t to some extent and my job doing the languaging or john's job or your job you know has been without realizing it doing a category job yeah which is a huge amount of labor as soon as you've done the you know as soon as you have this whole this category of like okay we should all be considering our capacities of heart and mind that are transferable to everything the mind touches, mindfulness becomes a shoe-in. Like it's the most obvious thing to do because it's like one of the most evidence-based, broadly effective for a range of different sort of outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. Or at very least, your training programs should be informed by mindfulness 
if not like you know targeted just for you know to be mindfulness based or you know primarily interested in mindfulness they should definitely have been you know, mindfulness as an important ingredient so i would say that can be an inquiry of people it's just like who do you want to be like what what are the good things what are your values you know do you want to be generous do you want to be appreciative and aware of when your friends or your family need your you know, support or care for listening right do you want to be those things i'll tell you what we now know the brain is plastic mm-hmm. we now know that we can change in our adult life to, to radical degrees including the personality indices that we used to think were set from the age of seven back when i did a psychology degree yeah so if you you know if you start from where they are and say yes yeah, so, so what do you want more of in your heart and in your mind mm. and what do you want less of like what, what would it give you good well and then go well you know there are these evidence-based reasons why mindfulness is a good start, but like they it might not be the right thing for them. I guess there's that openness as well. Yeah. And recognizing that there are now other similarly similar evidence-based things on the on the market on the horizon. But for some people it might be reading or journaling or you know, that kind of thing. This podcast is sponsored by Be Present Coaching, upskilling business professionals with mindfulness tools. Check out bepresent.uk for more information on corporate courses and guided mind exercises. So where, where are you based, Jamie? Well, the Mindfulness Initiative is based in London. I've been based in Sheffield the last Sheffield. five years. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's all. I see. Uh, and, and for and, and Jonathan, where are you based? I'm in Alton, Illinois, USA. I'm about 30 minutes from St. Louis, Missouri. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Guy and I are always talking and I'm always telling Guy, like, what can I do? You know, and um, there's so many issues just, you know, we talk about mindfulness. There's a lot of people out here that have where I am that have never even heard heard of mindfulness, what it means. What what is that? You know, I've been a musician for many years. I had some hearing loss. I went to a an ear doctor and, you know, they said, well, we can't do a lot about the ear ringing, but you can do this uh, thing called mindfulness-based treatment. I'm not sure what that is. But you can look it up. But I said, well, I know a little thing, a little bit about it. But you know, it's just these things benefit us so much that we want to share them. But it goes, you know, like your work, it goes so so far beyond that. I mean, the heroin epidemic that we've been dealing with here hasn't gone anywhere. The yeah. you know. 90% of the Ritalin is manufactured here and prescribed here, you know, and it's like, how do we turn away from these things? We need to turn toward them and start questioning them and saying, okay, how can we individually wake up to some of this stuff and again, uh, encourage people to do the same. Mm. So thank you so much for answering that. Mm. Yeah. So, so Jonathan, I was just, saying that the second half, I'd like to get a, a little bit more, bit deeper into it. And so my question um, is around the intentionality, right? And so one of the comments you made is that um, attention is susceptible to hijack. Mm. And, then, and then you also went on to say that in this idea of, you know, storytelling and being able, you know, how do you best put the story forward? You know, how, how do you, you know, come across and, and resonate with people. And then I think the way that you had expressed it, and correct me if, if, I, if I'm wrong, Jamie, this idea of, of this in, being intentional, mm. right? So can you talk a little bit about the, you know, what does it mean to be intentional? And why is that important? Mm. Yeah, great. So over the last few years, we've been developing a narrative and evidence framework to understand why mindfulness and compassion are foundational capacities. And our first publication was Mindfulness Developing Agency in Urgent Times. So this is how we develop our power, I guess, to act in uh, the meta-crisis in a time of confusion and disruption. And then we went on to to look at the climate crisis in, in, in particular. And in both those documents, action is key. Obviously, you need to act on the climate. And you know, the purpose of the first document was to look at how our ability to act is sort of uh, underdeveloped and undermined by digital media and various 
other things that we lay out there as part of the problem statement. And a big part of what we're lacking is awareness of what our values are, like really clarity on what we really think is important. Yeah. Clarity in terms of what our deeper intentions are, and then an ability to act in line with those values and intentions. If you ask people, you know, what are the values that guide your life and guide your decisions? The vast majority of people have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's a revelatory process to go through. Like, like what am I really doing here? Am I, am I really just sort of doing what I should be doing? Because, you know, I was on the, went to university because I sort of should and, you know, got a job and whatever because I, what I was best at and, you know. But I think mindfulness as a way of interrupting autopilot of responding creatively rather than reacting blindly to impulse or habit is a way of living life on purpose in a way that is considered and aligned. And there are mindfulness training interventions that really make use of this mechanism. So most popular probably is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's called a mindfulness informed intervention. It's about helping patients because it's you know initially anyway a kind of clinical application although mm-hmm. it's used in the workplace and, and more broadly to define what you know a good life looks like by their own standards mm-hmm. to look at how maybe some of their problems are out of alignment with that to make commitments to change it because of that lack of alignment and then mm-hmm. use using mindfulness to act, to act more at the time on purpose so that it's more aligned and that's hugely hugely important for us as individuals but if you look at this writ large across society, I mean, like, if you ask people what they really value, it's often intrinsic, most often, 75% of people will say it's largely intrinsic values. So these are things like nature, family, community, love, mm-hmm. generosity, stuff which are kind of like good for their own sake. That's, that's why it's intrinsic. Whereas extrinsic is sort of stuff that's a means to an end. And we tend to accumulate it or value it. We're not quite sure why, um, I guess. But, but, but uh, so, you know, money, power, fame, status, which should yeah. theoretically get us something down, you know, trade it off for something down the way. But we, yeah. but um, 25% of us say, no, that is most important in life. I value that most. And we should, you know, I'm on to. The problem, problem is that um, although 75% of us say that, you know, intrinsic values are most important to us, we think most other people, are extrinsically motivated. They're just really out for money, pain, power, status, wealth, we know. And so it's a sort of prisoner's dilemma. We kind of think everyone else is sort of out for all that stuff. So why should uh, I, don't know, I act with a sort of generous open heart or something? I know it's possible. So as a society, we are we have driven off the cliff. Like climate chaos is here. We're already locked into hugely risky level of warming that could lead and probably is already leading to feedback loops, which will be unstoppable. So if you speak to climate scientists, they say, like 95% of them say, I don't believe it's any more possible to get the 1.5 target, um, which is what you know the international community is geared towards. That is, is our only hope, really, of avoiding catastrophic knock-on effects. This is a survey, by the way, in Nature of the top climate scientists, 95% saying, you know, publicly, I'm saying, yeah, yeah, UN goals, 1.5 degrees, let's try and mm. you know, keep it there. Privately, 95% say, like, no way. I'm just saying that to reinforce the fact that we've driven off the cliff already, and it's just the case now mm. of making sure that the landing, uh, that we have a landing that is not going to completely yes, yeah. know, explode us, uh, our civilization. And uh, every sh- every shade of a degree matters, and that's why it's so urgent. But, like, it's so out of alignment with what we say is important. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to destroy communities. It's going to make you know it is already devastating nature. It's going to make us you know much less able to be generous. The kind of open societies that we have are going to sort of like be increasingly more more kind of like reactionary and closed, etc., etc., etc. As we make the case in the reconnection report, it's that lack of in you know clear values, intentionality, acting in line with that. That's anyway one part of what we would call the inner dimension of the climate crisis which is, has until quite recently been largely ignored by mainstream policy and research in the climate world. When you use the word intentional, or you say mm-hmm. it's been more intentional, where I come from as a mindfulness teacher, and it's, you know, we keep to get your feedback, and is that 
It's because most of the time we are not intentional. No. Exactly. So that's why when you say intentional, in my mind, is like your audience think, okay, well, I'm already very intentional and this helps me be a little bit more intentional. Mm. Or it's like, we're not intentional at all. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? So yes. there's, it's when you, you can say, in, be, yeah, intentional. Do they understand the severity that it's like, wow. <laughs> That's a really good point. It's not just like, oh, I'm this much intentional. And yeah, I want to be a little bit more intentional, right? I'm, I'm wealthy. I want to be a little bit more wealthy. Or I'm not, it's like, because again, when I'm working with my students, you know, one of the exercises that I do in the first five minutes, is I'll, I'll just ask them to close their eyes, take a few breaths, but then I say, what is it that you're thinking? I won't give any rules other than, just, you know, like the old catchphrase hosters, say what you see. And then as people say it out, it's, and I've done this with like over a hundred people in my research and it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm a bit bored or I'm this, but there's like thought, and then a thought, then a thought, then a thought. And then I asked the question, well, you know, well, don't think of anything. Now what do you see? And it's like, it's the same pattern. Mm. And it's like, it's, when you mentioned the term autopilot, it's like there's this series of thinking that happens inevitably from the moment you wake up to the moment that you go to sleep. And thinking is amazing, right? That's where creativity and all that comes from. But it's that intentionality, you know, when you're at the dinner table with your kids, do you want to be thinking about the meeting tomorrow morning? Yes or no? Did you know that you had choice that moment? Or when you're watching Netflix? And then all of a sudden you think of that argument that you had earlier on. And it's like the hijacking expression that you use. It's like that skill of saying, okay, I see you, Mr. Thought, but right now I'm watching a movie. I'll address you later. Or, you know, I won't address you at all. But that from the moment to moment experience, this hijacking is constantly going on. And that in every moment to moment, there is also choice. Mm-hmm. And it's through the awareness and through the with a practice of like, oh yeah, now I sit down and I close my eyes to do the meditation and a thought arises and another thought arises, another thought arises. But the more you do it, it's like, oh, well, that's just the way it is. Thoughts are going to constantly arise. And so this idea that I am not my thoughts and in the William Kukin kind of like, I'm not my first thought, you know, the first arrow, but this idea of choice in every moment. And, you know, that's what I'm getting to is like with a lot of the students that I work with, you know, after having experienced just sitting quietly and noticing thoughts arise and that this bombardment of this this series of of thoughts and thinking whether you like it or not thoughts are going to arise but the more that you notice that is that you're not you're not necessarily your first thought the first thought can come on but it's 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 that space in which there's choice to say do i want that fork in the road do i want Mm. to act on it or not and it's not Mm. and it's not in these big ideas it's in literally in these micro moment to moment experiences that that this choice and this walk in the road takes place so mm. much. I mean, so much so that it's it's like a superpower. And I've spoken with John Kabat-Zinn about this. He goes, "Is it a superpower?" Mm-hmm. Because it's it's like Plato's allegory of the cave and the idea that you're living in with everybody in society. This is society. This is not. This is the norm. This is what what is the the expected. And then you know you have this character that leaves the cave and then goes and sees that the reality is that this is just shadows being you know silhouetted onto the cave but the reality that the the chicken that you see is not a chicken it's actually a reflection of the chicken on that Mm -hmm. and what is your understanding or interpretation when you hear that and this idea that you know when we talk about the advantages of mindfulness less stress you know more community and more productivity more creativity but on one extreme it's it's also how do you escape from this autopilot, escape from this zombie mode. And when you say autopilot, it's like the, the real warning sign is that, yeah, it is. What's the alternative? You know, the fact that we are constantly thinking and in this thinking, we didn't, we're not realizing that there's this choice in each moment to like, you know, someone says something, a react versus them respond, but it's constantly all throughout the day. So I, I, it may be a, a bit, you know, worded, and my description there, but you know, I just wanted to get your take on that, on that moment-to-moment experience and the idea of choice. And if I would say, what's the real? Be- I mean, of the most top couple of benefits, profound benefits of what mindfulness brings versus the stress reduction and the you know, maybe less physical pain and stuff. 
what are more the philosophical kind of deeper aspects of being aware that you're not, you don't have to be this zombie and that in each moment to moment and the thinking whether you like it or not is never going to end, but it's how you then as the observer or the, what John calls the awareness to it. How does that change your experience? How you play this, this avatar when you wake up every day, Jamie, how that plays. So it's really difficult to tell people without showing them quite how unaware, unintentional, on zombie mode. <laughs> but isn't that scary though, though? Because like, once are. you realize that, that is scary. Because yeah, exactly. you say, that's why, you, and the reason why I brought it up is you say intentionality. And my point is like, yeah, because you're living your life unintentionally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? And, and I that's, think that's, that's one of the extremely big... profound, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big learning points, of course, the first you know day or two of the course. But does it even get, trans- I mean, because that is a hard message because, you know, if you can translate that in one or two days, then, you know, credit to you, but that's... Well, I mean, like you say about your thoughts, people start, start to get a sense like, wow, I am not in control of my own mind. Yeah, and how crazy, how repetitive, how random and how incessant those thoughts are, right? And when it comes to like practicing it during the day, you realize like, I really wanted to be mindful today, but I really wasn't. Like I tried for a little bit and then I forgot for about three hours and like, you know, I, I drove home and I didn't even, wasn't even aware of it, etc. So yeah, in the first couple of weeks of inquiry, often, you know, often that stuff, that stuff does come up. And, but it's, it's, you know, starting from where people are and, the, and where people are is having a very little understanding of what the problem, even the problem is, yeah. you know, that they're, that they're addressing on a mindfulness course. And it sort of goes back to, you know, asking people, well, you know, like, what are you practicing? Mm-hmm. Um, could also be, are you aware of, of ways in which your, your mind will be not serving you? And, mm. and people yeah. around you. So, so that can be talking about, you know, autopilot and lack of awareness, or it could be talking about like biases and ways in which we predictably get caught up and come unstuck. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but to answer your question about the profound benefit. And even what is the main benefit of mindfulness for you? <laughs> because some people, some people say, oh yeah, it made me, you know, every time I have well, a meeting I'm... now, I'm not so stressed about it. So I get great. And in the conversation, I had a great byproduct almost of. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna so go, go, yeah. si- sidestep go. your question. Um, <laughs> go for because it. Because I'm, I'm not a main benefit kind of, kind of salesman. I'm a storyteller. So tell me this, yeah, synthesizer or storyteller. Yeah. Of a, of exactly. I'm a synthesizer of a large amount of information into mm-hmm. a, a form. I think it can be understood and digested in a way that it has not been understood and digested before. And so if we if we start off, you know, looking at the mindfulness developing agency in urgent times document, I recommend, you know, all of our all of our documents are free as PDFs and you can also buy them at cost online in print versions. But in, in that mindfulness developing agency in urgent times document, we have a framework there at the beginning. And that breaks down the faculties of agency, this like power to act in the world, into into three domains. And the first one is the domain of perception, seeing and processing information in the world. And in there, we have how mindfulness is obviously more than just attention training, but intention, yeah. attention is so important. And if you had to say anything, I mean, it's, it's the thing that's most commonly understood, I guess. I'm, you know, I'm keen to say something you know, more interesting, but like the faculty of attention renders our world for us. It binds together all these other kind of cognitive and emotional functions and it creates the world that you see. And so people who are in, con- in control of your attention are in control of your world. But that's when you speak about um, the idea of hijacking, right? Exactly. So, attention hijacked from digital. But, if, if that's, but, that, but that's the dilemma, right? So yes, the attention is and how you perceive the world. But if you have this thing that's constantly hijacking you at every step and meeting you every step of the way in this hijack, and you might have this yeah, wonderful and, thought. And in but that then, document, we say... Mindfulness isn't enough on its own to be equal to the the algorithms um, powered by AI that know you better than know yourselves. Mm. But it might give you a little bit of space and awareness to be able to get in protocols and protection mechanisms mm. that make you you know more able to do it. So, but you know, also in that per- perception um, section domain, we have, for instance, receptivity, which is 
you know, I mentioned our definition of mindfulness being, you know, awareness that is open, allowing, curious, and kind. And these qualities sort of work together to broaden the bandwidth of perception, to help us to be open to novel information, and particularly challenging or difficult information, and can radically make more information available to us. Not only that, it also opens up new sort of channels of knowing, particularly through the body. Yeah. So it's our bodies that help us with empathy. It's our bodies that help us with tuning into our values and working out whether we're acting in line with them, etc. So, so that is a really important component. So, so yes, it helps us to, to perceive the world more accurately, to, to, to see, to, to be receptive to more types and depth of information. Moving on to the second domain, this is what we call understanding or making sense of the mm-hmm. world, making sense and making decisions. And this includes the commonly documented outcome of mindfulness training, which is it improves our perspective. And politicians say this all the time. It's one of the main things that they talk about. Oh, it really helps me with my perspective. I don't get so caught up and lost in, in the early burly of politics. Um, helps me the see holistic, the trees. Yeah. Helps mm-hmm. me see if other people's perspectives. So it helps with cognitive flexibility and perspective taking, and of course, helps us to get a new perspective on our thoughts. Um, which really supports this this sense making. So you can have you have you have a bit of separation between you and your thoughts, and particularly in politics, where like if you disagree with my thoughts and I'm totally identified with that thought, you're attacking me. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Us versus the. We have a little bit of space. I can go. I can right. see that you're not attacking me. You're attacking my proposal. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a, that's a different thing. Yeah. So so the, this is fundamental for the way that we can keep things on the workbench of the mind. It helps working memory. Helps perspective taking. And uh, helps with sort of uh, collective intelligence as well, ways in which we make sense together. And then moving on to the kind of third domain we have. Reaction. We've yeah. seen the world, understood the world. Then it's like, what do we do about it? How do we? And then this is back into the territory of like intentionality, living on purpose, responding, not reacting, and also regulating difficult emotions, anger, etc. And uh, and boosting pro-social emotions, pro-social affects and intentions, compassion, kindness, etc., to help us actually work collectively in the face of our shared challenges. So yeah, I'm, I can't offer you one, but I can offer you a framework to, to think about all of them <laughs> at the same time, which is yeah. perceiving, understanding, and acting. And yeah, basically our document is working through that framework to get all these data points from this vast evidence base into a constellation that makes sense. So where can our listeners um, and our audience go to get this information? And also you can share the website, but also if they were going to start, what are a couple of, you know, top couple of articles or, or videos or something that you would recommend? Hey, if you want to find out a bit more about us, you know, here's some of the cool things we've yeah. done recently. Check out these couple of things first, and then I'll put them down in the, in the bio that they can just, if they want to go check it out, check out this Great. first. So there's a couple of videos. There's, there's an interesting video of mindfulness being mentioned by the prime minister in the house of commons. So if you go to our website and find mm-hmm. the page that talks about the all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness, yep. you can see Chris Rowan, who I mentioned earlier, is found founding this program in Parliament, asking a question of the, the, the then Prime Minister, um, and her, her response on that, and the response of the House um, um, Speaker of the House of Commons is is really interesting. Then there's a video of the day that we brought together 40 politicians from 14 different countries for a day of practice and inquiry with John Kabat-Zinn. So that's that's really interesting. Hearing the politicians themselves talk about you know the impact of these these practices on their lives. And then we have our newest document. It's probably you know it's maybe a bit more accessible than the agency document. So this is called Reconnection: Meeting the Climate Crisis In and Out. Um, so it's 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 kind of more for a generalist policymaker audience, whereas the agency document somewhat more detailed for mindfulness geeks. And on that web page, if you go to our, our website and then work and publications, you'll find this page. It's got the, like, our launch webinars and, like I say, all of our documents downloaded for free. And we've got, you know, scores on there. So yes. all the way back to the Mindful Nation UK report back in 2015 that was that is still, you know, still referenced even today because there hasn't really been anything like it since. Awesome. It is truly fascinating. And again, you know, such, um, just given that Jonathan and I, you know, we, the conversation that we had with these mindfulness luminaries and to have someone like you that's so proactive and being at the forefront of like, you know, how do we make this part of, you know, mm. policy? How do we educate those that make the decisions to kind of, you know, help educate them? Right. That? So for you, um, in the action for happiness style, what matters most to you? I'm afraid I'm, I uh, survival at this point, because like, it is seriously in doubt. 
depending on how old you are, it'll be in your lifetime. But we're we're confronted by biosphere ecosystem collapse, transgression of planetary boundaries, erosion of soils, collapse of you know all kinds of things that support our life on our own, our only home. And we don't realize, I don't, I don't think quite how fragile our interconnected, just-in-time, globalized societies are and our sort of political systems are. And we take a lot of it for granted. And when stuff gets real, when it hits the fan, as it were, it's going to be rough. And it's soon. So, yeah. So what, what are you... What, what are you... <laughs> yeah. And what are you hopeful about? Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that human beings are like deep down underneath underneath it all intrinsically good and that we're starting to get a rebalancing of the stories we tell about ourselves in the 20th century we had this sort of selfish gene thing and competition is good and we need individualizing narratives you know and we're starting to see through science and observation other types of observation that actually we have hugely pro-social tendencies collaborative tendencies that we have these intrinsic values to heart, that we are, that, yeah, we have a tremendous potential if we only feed those sides of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what these practices can help us do. And again, that's why people like you keep people like Jonathan and I hopeful that, yes. that the future is bright and that, you know, yeah, that, 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 that there is a is path. On- yeah. On the other side of the age of consequences, but, we, but you know we, we're going to have to go through that together. Um, well, like you said, like there's the so side. many animals and species that have become extinct in the mm. past fifty years, and there's mm. enough to be some casualties in this in this neglect. But at the same time, there is a re there is a a new era of education, especially around mindfulness, like you said, was maybe very esoteric or unheard of, mm. maybe mm. like a handful of years ago, but now is at the forefront. And it's, you know, it's an education of the, the general population that it's starting to, to become more and more prevalent. Yeah. And like you said, stories, I mean, hmm. the deep realization that, you know, like you said, we all are thinking most of the time and don't even realize it. And uh, how, uh, you know, the worst example of being driven by our own stories can lead to so much othering all the way to war, hmm. you know, so. Hmm. Let's pay it forward. Yeah. 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 Amen. So my last question to you before I go is like, for the next guest who you don't know who it's going to be, you know, what question would you like to ask to them? Ah, so this is someone who maybe like works or in the, in the area of mindfulness or potentially, potentially, yeah. Potentially, but maybe not. Okay. Ah, um, what has been your most valuable practice? Okay. We get some surprising answers to that sometimes. We will do. And, and... and like, so, so some people who are, you know, really into mindfulness or whatever might not say that. And, and one, I asked that to someone recently and they were like, gratitude, gratitude journaling. Oh no, gratitude journaling and morning pages, which is where you get up and <laughs> just write whatever comes into your head. Yeah. 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 Well, Jamie, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I love the way you talk. Indeed. I love the way you, I love the way you present. Thank you. I don't know. You you have a very posh accent, you know, up in Sheffield. I don't know if that's <laughs> the But you sound very, you know, what I mean, articulate when you speak. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. It's wonderful. So thank you so much for doing this, and um, it's just yeah, so, so so thrilled to you know, as I'm trying to understand my direction in life. Now I've been 16 years in the corporate world at a software company, um, which I left in July. Mm. Now teaching mindfulness full time, I'm really trying to understand, you know, how do I make a bigger impact? How do I help and understanding, you know, what's important to me and then trying to, you know, with people like you and John and and Mathieu and just really understand how do we help contribute and give ourselves a chance of being successful in the future, you know, with climate, Mm. with life and with happiness. And um, yeah, so it was just an honor to speak with Mm. you today. Mm, likewise yeah yeah thanks for coming thank you jamie love to meet you both uh if we could do this again you know perhaps in you know 2023 at some point you know i I would love to just get a catch-up and um there's something you particularly like to talk about absolutely i'd be happy yeah yeah we didn't you know we didn't cover the detail of the reconnection report or narrative so you know maybe we catch up when that's uh yes impact or something 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I'd be happy even to drive to Sheffield or something and, you know, bring the equipment. Uh, where are you based again? I'm London. I'm near Wembley. London. Yeah, well, I'm in London quite a bit as well. So yeah, I'm yeah. Sure we so I would love to, um, to, in the studio, maybe be have one at some point. But thank you so much for the, all the work that you do, for taking the time. And, you know, I, you know, when people say, I've got to stop on the hour, hard stop, but you were like, I'm cool. You know, if you want to go beyond the hour, I've, I've got time set aside. And I really, I really appreciate that. And, um, and thank you so much. Thanks for making it this far and showing your support and love to the podcast. A big thanks again to Be Present Coaching for their support. Find out more about their masterclass mindfulness courses and free guided meditations at bepresent.uk. Bepresent.uk. I'm your host, Guy, and this is the Mindful News Podcast. If you've taken away something from today's episode, please go ahead and share the link with a friend. Until next week.